Welcome to Sense and Sensibility, the Inflation Guy podcast. I am Michael Ashton, the Inflation Guy, and I am your host. And today I'm going to give a brief preview of the CPI report next week. Uh, just a couple of, of items to look for. And then I'm going to talk about a, a new futures exchange that may or may not do some interesting things in the healthcare space. So stay tuned. <clears throat> But first, a word from our sponsor. Sponsors. This episode of Sense and Sensibility is sponsored by Simplify ETFs, a fast-growing manager of alternative ETFs solving today's most pressing portfolio challenges. Not only do they have sophisticated, diversifying strategies like a managed futures ETF or yield curve plays like TUA, they also have the number one best-performing intermediate core bond fund from last year. That's AGGH. They have an enhanced income ETF, ticker HIGH, that was in the top 2% of its category. Check out their website, simplify.us. You can find their entire lineup of ETFs at simplify.us slash ETFs. This podcast, of course, is also sponsored by Enduring Investments. Imagine if you could be a hedge fund investor or a pension or wealth management CIO 35 years ago instead of in 2024. With all of the inefficiencies that persisted before they were exploited and squeezed out by high-frequency trading, automated spread trading, and even fast-moving opportunistic asset allocation models, the opportunity set for Alpha back then was rich and persistent. Now imagine that there's a market today where such inefficiencies still exist, a market which is poorly understood both at the security and portfolio structure levels due, the, due to the absence of a granular understanding of the drivers of valuation. Wouldn't you want to be allocating capital energetically to that market? Well, there is such a market, the market for inflation-linked and inflation-adjacent instruments. And your guide through this market is Enduring Investments, true inflation specialists, investment management for institutions and individuals, and consulting for industrials, insurance companies, and OCIOs. Visit us at EnduringInvestments.com. <clears throat> so we're going to start with the a preview of the CPI next week. Um, so the consensus out there is 0.30%, uh, like exactly 0.3% uh, for for core inflation and a bit less than that, like 0.2% on, on headline. And, and that's sort of interesting. I actually think my forecast is a little bit lower than that, like 0.05%. So I'm, I think we could get a 0.2% 0.25%, something like that on core. And part of my reason reasoning for that is that I think housing is going to be weaker than people are sort of factoring in and weaker than it has been recently. Used cars ought to drag, uh, although I'm less sure of that. Used cars have sort of been all over the lot, so to speak. Uh, on, in the other direction, there's a little care on airfares, um, shipping issues, around the globe have contributed to tightness in the jet fuel market on the East Coast especially. And it's possible that shows up as strength in airfares, even though the um, we've just got normal seasonals so far for for jet fuel prices. <clears throat> but but the shelter part is is what to watch. You always want to watch shelter because it's it's the big honking piece of of the whole CPI. You know, like 40% or something of the whole CPI. Um, and for a while, it's been 
obviously it's been high, it's been coming down a little bit, but it's one reason that people have been missing too low on core inflation uh, somewhat recently is that shelter inflation has come in higher than people expected. You know, remember, there are people out there who think shelter inflation is going to go to zero or or below um, in the next six months or so uh, on a year-on-year basis, and that's just not going to happen. Um, but uh, but it is decelerating. It just hasn't decelerated nearly as fast as as people uh, people thought it was going to be. But it looks to me in, in, in our models that we're getting close to where the monthly numbers should start to decelerate pretty quickly. It's been around, you know, shelter has been around point, well, the rent of shelter has been around 0.4%-ish um, for a while. And I think that fairly quickly it's going to start dropping down into the 0.3s and 0.2s. <clears throat> if that happens this month, and I don't know, you don't know exactly when it's going to happen, but when it does happen, people are going to get very, very excited because core inflation will come in lower than expected and you're going to have all the people who have been confounded by the durability of shelter so far are going to, you know, and they've kind of vanished. You haven't heard from them recently. <clears throat> They're going to get back on the soapbox and talk about shelter deflation and all kinds of other deflation. Um, but we're not going to get those those things. However, it's going to get people very excited. In this report, if shelter does come in soft, and that's the reason that core is soft, I'm going to look past it because, again, that's sort of expected. Over the next six months or so, shelter should decelerate, and then it's going to start turning back higher from around the the 3% kind of range in in um, primary rents and owner's equivalent rents. It should then start trending higher, which, again, for the people who are looking for it to be zero or below, are going to, it's going to be very disturbing to them. But that's that's kind of what it looks like is going to happen. Um, but so we have to look at a couple of things beyond shelter, um, especially, of course, we always want to look at core services, um, core services, core services, X shelter. So that's the super core, right? The stuff that's sort of wages, um, you know, wages that are decelerating, but, but they're still rising at 5% year on year. And that tends to factor into the, the uh, super core part. Uh, but we should also start watching core goods. So core goods, and that includes used cars, which could be a drag, but used cars has, you know, was part of the big spike originally um, as we were all shut shut up and we had to go, you know, we were buying goods on Amazon and, and there just couldn't, there wasn't enough supply, but everybody, you know, we were getting m- shipments of money into our bank accounts so everyone went out, out and bought goods. <clears throat> And so anyway, that that led used car prices and, and all kinds of other prices to surge, and then that inflation rate has gradually declined. Prior to COVID, goods goods were generally in core goods were generally in deflation, a little slightly deflation for a long period of time, and I don't think that's going to be the case going forward. But we have it has been dripping, and it's been close to zero, around zero for for a little bit here. But um, if you look at personal goods consumption, um, that tends to be a decent lead for core goods inflation. And that was negative at the end of 2022. But by the end of 2023, uh, personal goods consumption was rising at about 3.5% year on year. So <clears throat> that suggests to me that we are we are getting to the point, and again, used cars can muddy this on any given month, but we're getting to the point where you, we're... If I'm right, 
core goods are going to start to accelerate somewhere here. The strength of the dollar makes that, you know, could delay that a while. But but that's the part where, again, it's going to confound people if core goods doesn't just end up back to the old, you know, minus 1% kind of level. That's if you want to get core inflation overall to the two, two and a quarter level that's the Fed's target, you know, you either need shelter to be quite low or you need goods to be in consistent deflation like they were for for so very long. Um, And if you don't get either of those things, then you're just not going to get core inflation uh, or, God forbid, median inflation anywhere close to where the Fed can can say they're at target. All the people who are looking at the three-month moving average, six-month moving average, actually no one's looking at the three-month moving average anymore because that looks bad, but the six-month moving average of of inflation, what they're telling you is that that you have to include those really the one or two really bad months we had in there in order to get the right number, and those things are going to stop being, they're going to start dropping out. <clears throat> so those folks will start looking at, you know, eight month moving averages. Anyway, of course after after the uh, the CPI report, I'll I'm going to you know post my usual uh, summary of it to the blog. Uh, the Inflation Guy blog, and and obviously I'll do a podcast with the details. So make sure you subscribe and stay tuned to those things. <clears throat> and now on to sort of our main topic today. If you've if you've listened to this podcast for a while, then you know that one consistent bee in my bonnet is the need for new instruments in the inflation space to be able to a trade inflation efficiently, such as with a liquid futures contract. Um, I talked about this way back in episode 32, and there's a, a link in the show notes. We have a lot of sh- links in the show notes today, by the way, so be sure to look at them. Um, and, and also, B, new instruments to be able to trade subcomponents of inflation so that you can address specific exposures that you have. An old friend of mine likes to say that your inflation is not the same as my inflation. And so why should we all use the same inflation index or the same inflation uh instruments. And, and the answer to that is that because right now we only have one sort of inflation index and instrument that you can trade, but but at least uh, ideally, you should be able to tailor your exposure, maybe not for individuals as much as with companies, you know, that have particular exposures like medical care that are very specific to uh, to their company or their retirement accounts. Um, so we, we, for a long time, I've said we need to have new instruments to, to be able to do that. Right now, <clears throat> you can emulate some of those exposures, but it's clunky. For example, my company developed a hedge for Dutch wage inflation a long time ago, and, and we developed another hedge for Quebec retiree inflation and, sub, sub, and also some specific subcomponents of, of the CPI. But it's, those hedges are not only clunky, but they're, you know, they work, but they're also, they become more imprecise the more granular you try to get because we're using proxies, right? There aren't instruments specifically linked to these things we're trying to hedge. And it's much easier to have a proxy for a broad index than it is for something very specific. You know, like if you wanted to hedge inflation of, you know, Dramamine motion sickness pills. Okay, that's a really, that's a very, very specific thing to hedge. 
And it, it's very, very hard to hedge <laughs> if you want to be that specific about it. Um, there's a lot of basis risk as you get more and more specific. <clears throat> so, um, so when we talk about inflation subcomponents, like apparel or medical medical care or tuition or things like that, you know, those are obviously more specific than the broad index, and and it's the reason why again you can replicate these things. But if you had an instrument that was directly related, directly indexed to what it is that you want to hedge, that's the most efficient way to do it, just to find the other side of the trade. And you know, you know, again, if you've listened for a while, you know I've worked on these things in the past. I'm, I'm pretty sure I've mentioned it. I couldn't actually find a podcast where I had mentioned it, but I'm sure I've mentioned in the past, because it would be weird if I hadn't, uh, that back in 2007 or so when I was at Natixis, I worked with Bob Schiller's company, Macro Markets, to create a security that would allow people to trade medical care inflation um, on the stock exchange, <clears throat> you know, like like a regular equity. Um, there's a link to the SEC filing in the show notes. It never actually happened because the the global financial crisis intervened and we couldn't get the thing underwritten. But there's also a Bloomberg article written years later about this effort uh, also in the show notes. Um, but it was, you know, it's something obviously I've been working on for quite some time. <clears throat> and it, it's hugely important. If you run a post-employment medical plan, an OPEB plan, or if you're an, an, an insurer with long-term care insurance tails, then you have big exposure to medical care inflation, not just regular inflation. And there's no way to hedge it other than to call me, Okay. I love talking to you, but it's not right that the only way you can hedge medical care inflation is to talk to Mike. Um, and obviously, there are other sub-indices that matter, but medical care inflation is the one that you know has a very high angst-to-weight ratio. So much more, it causes people much more angst and upset than, than its actual weight in the CPI is. Uh, and so it's something that would be super valuable to be able to hedge well. So I was really excited to hear a couple of years ago about the Intelligent Medicine Exchange or the IMX um, or an announcement about this potential exchange. Now, let me say before I go any further, and this will probably be obvious, but um, IMX is not sponsoring this podcast. I'm not making any money from IMX in any way. I've never even spoken to them. Uh, so, but just to be clear, this is not a product placement. This is me talking about a development in the market or a potential development in the market and giving my opinion about it. <clears throat> anyway, a couple of years ago, they expressed an intent to start up an exchange to trade healthcare system risks. Um, I've linked to the website in the show notes. And the, the website says, at IMX, we actively engage with healthcare participants, including healthcare systems, insurance providers, and institutional investors to explore and co-create strategies for managing risk. And that's super exciting. As another aside, I explored a couple of years ago the possibility of creating an exchange to be able to trade deliverable pharmaceutical futures. Uh, so, for example, you could trade a a contract on uh, a generic statin drug. Um, so if you, you know, are running your, uh, your, your healthcare, uh, you're, you're in a big company and you're, you're managing your healthcare exposure for your company, um, you know, there are certain drugs where if, if those prices go wacky, then it, it really affects your overall exposure quite a bit. 
And there's very little transparency about pharmaceutical costs. So our idea was let's make a futures contract tied to these various drugs, maybe generics like uh, like a statin um, or maybe things more specific like Lipitor. <clears throat> maybe deliverable, maybe not, but but that was sort of the idea. We even uh, formed – I co-founded a company called RxRx with the clever tagline that it was the prescription for your prescriptions, um, which explored the idea. But we, we couldn't get – the backing to go and 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 make a decent run at it, <clears throat> and so we ended up, you know, liquidating our XRX and not really doing anything with it. We actually applied for a grant from the government to explore creating a hedgeable index, um, and we didn't get that grant. So you can you can see I've I've worked on these things uh, uh, for quite a while. I wasn't able to make a go of it myself, but um, but spent a lot of time on it. And for what it's worth, I thought it was really important to make these contracts like on things like pharmaceuticals, deliverable to force convergence. But anyway, I, I digress. You didn't, this isn't about, you know, our failed attempt to create a pharmaceutical exchange. The important point is that I really want this. <laughs> and I've tried really hard, really tried hard to make this happen. And, and still today, I'm looking for people to take the opposite side of medical care CPI swaps, you know, so that I can get something happening. I mean, if you, if you, if you, dear listener, are an institution and you want to pay medical care CPI and receive a fixed rate, let me know. Um, or if you want to go the other way, um, let me know. And uh, maybe I can you know, broker something. But um, but this is something that, I, I, again, there's been a bead in my bonnet for quite some time. So in January, like literally just last month, the IMX was authorized to be a, des a designated contract market, a DCM, using the Minneapolis Grain Exchange to handle the clearing. So that's super exciting. They actually be, they're actually now a futures exchange. And so they can list these exciting futures, right? And then they announce their first contract. Link in the show notes. <clears throat> IMX Morningstar U.S. Healthcare Index Futures. Link in the show notes. This is terribly deflating, no pun intended. This great idea of having this healthcare exchange, which I obviously think is great because I wanted to do it myself, jumps through all the hoops to get approval as a contract market. And their first contract, the IMX Morningstar U.S. Healthcare Index Futures, is another way to trade stonks. The index is just an index of healthcare stocks. For what it's worth, there are dozens of ways to trade healthcare stocks in, in lots of different combinations. If you want exposure to healthcare companies, this is a great thing. You can do it with futures instead of a mutual fund or ETF or buying individual equities. But if you want to hedge hospital costs or, or pharmaceutical inflation, this is completely useless. It, it, it's, it's just stonks. And when the stock market goes up, this is going to go up. When the stock market goes down, this is going to go down. It'll go up up a little bit more than stocks go up. It'll go down a little more than stocks go down or, or maybe up a little less or whatever. I mean, you know, there'll be some relative performance, but it's going to be stonks. It's, it, is, it is stock market beta. And it's very sad. I can't, I can't convey to you how disappointing this is. Now, I'm a hopeful, optimistic guy. And so 
I'm going to try to be hopeful that this is just a way to get business going, you know, for this new exchange. Got to get a contract out there, and and if we put some stonks out there, people will trade them because that's what people do. And they'll arbitrage against, you know, other ways to trade them and, and you know. So you'll have a contract that has instant liquidity in a pretty tight market because, you know, the people making the markets can lean on other ways to trade the exact same thing. Um, I, I, I still don't think that's a, a wonderful approach. Um, it, you, know, there, you may end up with a contract that looks kind of nice, but there's no way I'm going to open up an account on a whole new exchange or ask my futures broker to give me access to that exchange just to trade stocks that I can trade more liquidly on a more established exchange. Um, I guess you can leverage it more than you can lever, you know, raw stocks or, or ETFs. But you can also do OTC derivatives on those things. So I don't, you know, again, you're not gaining very much. Offer me something unusual and useful that I can't trade elsewhere. And I'll absolutely work very hard to get access to that to that uh, that contract, that exchange, that market. Uh, so I don't know, but I'm 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 optimistic. This is just sort of a first step, and they actually will then list things that are that are useful to people who want to actually trade or hedge inflation. Heck, if anyone from that exchange is listening, reach out to me. I'll help you build something. <laughs> I'll help you make markets. I'll find people to use the contract. Just don't waste this opportunity. You know, you've gone through all the trouble and have a really, really an exchange that has a, a fantastic niche. Um, and and people need this. Just don't don't f it up. So I'm I'm taking a positive spin here, despite my disappointment. This is still progress. Along with the Kalshi Exchange, you know, the Kalshi Exchange continues to make progress, I think, in moving towards a true inflation futures market that builds on their interesting binary markets in inflation and some of the subcomponents like, you know, used cars. You can trade, you know, whether used cars this month will be over or under, you know, minus 1% or something. <clears throat> so, so there's still clearly some interest in making inflation truly tradable. And when I say some interest, not just interest with me, there are people out there, there are institutions that are working to try to make inflation truly tradable and adding that third leg of the liquidity stool. You know, if you want a truly liquid market, you know, inflation has always had cash and OTC derivatives and adding exchange traded products greatly improves the liquidity ecosystem. So, if Kalshi or IMX are able to make a liquid futures market, or even an illiquid futures market, it'll become liquid. If they're able to make a futures market in, in healthcare inflation or other subcomponents, it's a big, big deal. Um, so hopefully we can convince them to do something other than stocks. Anyway, that's all for today. Please like, subscribe, refer others. If you know anyone at the IMX Exchange, have them uh, listen to this podcast and have them reach out. And I'd, I'd, I'd love to help. Um, uh, you can subscribe for free to the blog at inflationguy.blog. Contact me at inflationguy at enduringinvestments.com and follow me on x at inflation underscore guy. And uh, visit Enduring Investments if you have an inflation challenge or if you have an, an new exchange that needs help on inflation. And most importantly, defend your money. And if inflation is coming for you, remember, you know a guy. <laughs>